Well, hey, thank you for tuning in today. Uh, I don't know if you use the word tuning in when you're listening to a podcast, but thank you for joining us. Uh, This is Pastor Brian. I'm on the pastoral team here at Edgewood, and we just love seeing what the Lord is doing for His glory. And I'm going to be speaking about God's glory uh, today. Uh, This is being recorded just a few days before our weekend services. Uh, This is our 4G podcast. Uh, We're focusing on gathering, growing, giving, and going with the gospel. So we're anticipating a number of people gathering with us this weekend as together we seek to grow and to give back to what God, give back to God what he has given to us and then go with the gospel to those who haven't heard before. Uh, Pastor Kyle is prepping for a sermon. Uh, He's preaching a week from this weekend, last weekend in December. And so uh, it's my joy today uh, to focus on our topic. So here's what, uh, just to set this up, I have been uh, really impacted by the scriptures recently. Every morning this week, um, I sit at a table in our basement. That's where I have my Bible, and I have uh, printed out prayers for each of our seven grandchildren. And I sit in a, in a different spot than I do when I'm working on my sermons, uh, just on purpose, so that I can just have a, a devotional time where I can read and pray and reflect. And sometimes I have note paper in front of me and sometimes not. Well, this week I found some old scratch paper because of some insight I had as I was contemplating the Incarnation. And so what I'm going to share today is, in essence, the beginnings of the sermon for this next weekend in very rough draft form. I've been thinking a lot about it and started typing uh, this morning, started uh, trying to see if I can pull all these different streams of thought together. Uh, I think you will be glad you are listening in today. And I hope you're motivated to come this weekend. We uh, have service Saturday night at 5, Sunday at 9, 1045, and also one at 1 p.m. And I hope you come back just to see how I've cleaned the message up, because I I know it's it's pretty rough at points, Um, but I'm eager to share it. So this week, I read an article giving advice to pastors about how to preach at a Christmas service. Here's what he said. Dear partner in preaching, here's a word of advice as you prepare your Christmas Eve sermon. Keep it short, sweet, and simple. <laughs> well, I'm going to aim for two out of three. I think I've managed to keep the message shorter. We'll see how that goes. Hopefully you'll find the sermon to be sweet, but it will not be simple or shallow or superficial. I'll do my best to explain some deep theological truth, and if you do your best to understand, well then, we will never look at Christmas the same. 
Incidentally, while I was working on this sermon at a coffee shop in our community, I ran into someone who I've had spiritual conversations with before, and he came up to me and said that he has watched several of our sermons online, and I was delighted to hear that. Um, He was sitting with another guy that I've gotten to know, and so I went over and talked to both of them. They both asked me about the message I was preparing for our four Christmas Eve services. So I decided to sit down with them at their table. I pulled up a chair, and I said, "Let, let me give you my best shot explaining what I'm planning to preach on. When I was done... I was feeling pretty good about my sermon summary until one of them started frowning and he said these words, that was all pretty confusing. (laughs) Uh, I told them I needed to go back to the drawing board and invited them to come this weekend to see if I make things any clearer. Well, I want to begin point one with this, glory defined Let's define the word glory. Glory literally means heavy in weight, important, significant, having great reputation and splendor, brightness, beauty, worthiness, honor. And so God's glory is the sum total of the weightiness of all of his attributes. It has to do with the fame of God's name. And glory, his glory shows his presence and his power, often displayed by bright light. God's Shekinah glory is the transliteration of a Hebrew word meaning the one who dwells. The idea is when the invisible God manifests his presence, he makes his glory visible in profound and powerful ways by descending to dwell among people. So when God makes his glory known, he often does so through a glory cloud or by displaying the bright light of a fire. We see this in Exodus 13, 20 and 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Well, point two, glory displayed. According to Exodus 25, verse 8, God instructed Moses, and let them make me a sanctuary, listen, that I may dwell in their midst. In this portable worship center, much like a tent, God's Shekinah glory shone over the mercy seat between the two golden cherubim. That's a word for angels. Uh, These are powerful angels. Outside, above the holy place, there was the manifest glory of the pillar of cloud by day and of fire by night. Visible reminders that God was always present with his people while they wandered in the desert for 40 years. One incident from Exodus bears repeating. Uh, So here's or bears mentioning after God's people worship the golden calf, 
um, God instructed Moses to set up this tent of meeting, and this tent of meeting was outside the camp. And so Moses had to leave the camp to meet with God. And the reason that was set up outside the camp, well, it was because the people had worshipped the golden calf. God was displeased with them. And then God tells them an angel will go before them, but that's not good enough for Moses because he wants God's presence to go with him. We see this in Exodus 33, 15. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. In verse 18, Moses pleads, please show me your glory. Exodus 40, 34 to 38, describes how God demonstrated his powerful presence. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. What was that like? And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys." The glory cloud signified God's presence, his protection, and his piloting. He was like their pilot of his people. In 1 Kings 6.13, after finishing the construction of the temple, God said, And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. 1 Kings 8, 10 and 11 says, And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory, are you hearing this? Of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. God's glory cloud was evidence of the greatness of his glory and that he was dwelling in the midst of his people. Point three, glory departed. Unfortunately, even though God displayed his presence and his power, God's people take God's glory for granted. And as they become spiritually sloppy, they start sinning in big ways. Once when they were losing a battle to the Philistines, they brought the ark of God with them. God doesn't want to be treated like a good luck charm, so he allowed the ark to be captured and 30,000 soldiers were slaughtered. When Eli the priest was told his sons died and the ark was in the hands of their enemies, he fell backwards, broke his neck, and died. When his daughter-in-law heard the ark was captured, before dying herself, she gave birth to a son and named him Ichabod. Now listen to this sad conclusion in 1 Samuel 4.21. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. The kid's name is The Glory Has Departed. And she repeated the same statement in verse 22, so she said it twice. 
Well, another very vivid description of the departing of God's glory takes place in the book of Ezekiel. The glory of God filled the temple for about 350 years. But then, because of God's because of the people's persistent sin and rebellion, God raised up the Babylonians who wiped out Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. So in vivid detail, we see how God's glory departed slowly and reluctantly from the temple before it was demolished. So picture this. Ezekiel 8.4, we see God's glory is enthroned upon the cherubim over the ark. We see that in these words, Exodus or Ezekiel 8.4, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there. Next, God's glory lifted from the mercy seat to the temple threshold. Now we're in Ezekiel 9, verse 3. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub. So the glory of God is leaving on which it rested. And it went to the threshold. It's moving out, moving out of the Holy of Holies, moving out even of the temple. And sadly, God's glory continued to withdraw from the cherubim, hovering now at the entrance. Ezekiel 10, verse 19, And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And after departing from the temple, God's glory was over the cherubim and is now seen standing, listen to this, on the Mount of Olives, Ezekiel 11, verse 23. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. So as a result, God was no longer dwelling with his people. And the display of his glory on earth, this is so sad. I pray we get this. That memory, what was just a a distant memory for them, that God's glory used to dwell on earth. And after God's glory departs from the temple, there's no record of God's Shekinah glory returning when the next temple was built under the guidance of Zerubbabel and Ezra. In addition, even though the temple constructed under Herod, hundreds of years later, was magnificent, and that temple took like 46 years to build, uh, there is no evidence of a visible display of God's glory within it. All right, number four, glory descended. Things look bleak as people wait for God to speak again. Isaiah 64.1 captures the plaintive plea of the people as they lament that the glory of God on earth is gone. And this cry, well, we could say it lasts for centuries. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. One of our Christmas carols captures this sense of longing and expectation. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel and ransom captive Israel. After centuries of silence, we see God once again exhibiting an explosion of sight and sound on the senses. Get this, I'm pausing here on purpose. The heavens are silent for four centuries until Harold the angel, okay, I mean the Herald angel, starts harking in Luke 2 verse 9, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, 
and they were filled with great fear. And then a whole arsenal of adoring angels breaks through the heavens and proclaims that God's glory has now returned in the birth of a baby. Listen for the word glory again. I'm in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The glory of God is back. His glory has returned to dwell with people. I'm entitling this episode, We Move from the Bad News of Ichabod to the Good News of Great Joy Brought by Emmanuel. From Ichabod to Emmanuel. But wait, wait, there's more. Notice all of this is in the superlative, in the highest. This refers to the loftiest and most elevated. God is at the highest level, the peak, the summit. He is the most beautiful, the brightest, and most brilliant. There is no one higher. There is nothing greater. Among the Jews, the highest is Elion, the main name for God. And so here we have the angels publicly acknowledging, so think back to the Old Testament, the cherubim, if you will, acknowledging the weight of God's glory in an act of worship, and the shepherds get the joy of joining them in praise. Now, while the Gospels of Luke and Matthew give the details surrounding the birth of Jesus, John provides us with the backstory or the theology behind the nativity. John 1.14 is startling in its simplicity, but also incredibly deep. Listen to these words. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is one of the most profound truths ever written, and yet it's one of the simplest and most elegant Greek sentences you'll ever read. The first part says that the word became flesh. This is the single most unique quality of Christianity that makes it different from any other religion. God became flesh. The miracle of Christmas is the infinite becoming an infant. The whole superstructure of Christianity rests on this truth. Jesus is fully God and fully man. A theologian described it this way, God must be able to come over to our side without leaving his own side. James Irwin, who traveled to the moon, said this about Christmas, there's something more important than man walking on the moon, and that is God walking on the earth. Notice the next phrase, and dwelt among us. Okay, let's bring all this together. To dwell refers to pitching one's tent. More specifically, it means to settle, to stay, to inhabit. One paraphrase puts it like this, Jesus came and moved into our neighborhood. And when our family would camp at campsites growing up, we couldn't help but get to know the other campers around us. Why? Well, it's difficult to be private when you're camping because everyone can see what you're doing. To say that Jesus pitched a tent implies that he wants to be on familiar terms with us. He wants to be close. He wants a lot of interaction. So when we think of what dwelt among us means, we might be tempted to think that Jesus just came to hang out with us. 
Oh, no. I mean, that part's true, but there's so much more. John uses a specific word that would make his first century readers remember the tent of meeting where God met with the Israelites in the Old Testament. You ready for this? This is also the same word used for tabernacle. It was also the place where sacrifices were made, where God's glory and holiness were displayed. In short, it was the divinely appointed meeting place between God and people. In John 2.14, Jesus answers a question about his declaration that the temple would be destroyed and raised in three days. The Jews are mystified by this because they look at the beauty of the temple that had taken like 46 years, but they were probably not expecting his answer. Here's what Jesus said. But he was speaking about the, listen, temple of his body. Now, with all that as background, hear John 1.14 again as I read it slowly. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Are you ready for this? In a similar way that God dwelt with his people in the tabernacle and in the temple, he now dwells with people through his only Son, Jesus Christ. In him, the glory of God has descended, and he has pitched his tent to dwell with us. God's good news comes into our bad news. Centuries of waiting are now over. Now, you're ready for some spiritual goosebumps? So on Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Do you know where he was before he rode into Jerusalem? He was on the Mount of olives and he rode a colt into jerusalem he wept over jerusalem listen to what the crowd exclaimed luke 19:30 blessed is the king who comes in the name of the lord peace in heaven here it is and glory in the highest the king of glory went into the temple that's what we read next So Jesus is reversing what happened with God's glory in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, it left the holy, the most holy place, and then it went to the threshold, and then to the entrance of the temple, and then to the Mount of Olives. And now Jesus, when he comes into Jerusalem, leaves the Mount of Olives, comes into Jerusalem on a colt, fulfilling prophecy from the book of Zechariah, and then goes into the temple. Friends, God's glory is now back. Now, uh, this is the part I've not fully developed yet, so you better come (laughs) this weekend (laughs) to see how I develop this. But the end of the book of Ezekiel, we're talking now about the millennial temple. And I'm in Ezekiel chapter 43. This is the rebuilt temple in the millennium, okay? Then he led me to the gate the gate facing east. Now that's significant because <laughs> the glory of God left out the east gate. Jesus came in through the east gate and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone. Think of Shekinah with his glory. 
And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Kabar Canal. Then I fell on my face, listen again, as the glory of the Lord entered the temple. The glory's back! By the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. Here we read again four times. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. There's a verse in Haggai that says that the glory of this temple is going to be much greater than the glory of any previous temple, including Solomon's. In Matthew 24, verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man, listen, coming on the cloud. So don't think of cumulus clouds. Think of the cloud, the Shekinah glory, the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Zechariah 14.4, on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west. All right, let me take us to the end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. So we see God's glory on display in the Old Testament. We see God's glory in the tabernacle. We see God's glory in the temple, and then we see it depart. We see it leaving the temple, going, departing up the Mount of Olives. Now we're in Revelation 21, verse 13. Oh, hold on. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Finally, number six, glory discovered. Don't miss this. God's glory was previously tied to a place, but now it's wrapped up in a person. And when you and I put our faith and trust in him, when we repent of our sins, when we receive him, when we believe in him, when we ask him to save us, when we're born again, his glory comes and resides within us. In fact, the glory of God now dwells in individual Christians. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, or do you not know? that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So, listen, glorify God in your body. That's the reality of Christmas. It answers the question, what does it mean? Well, here's another question. What is it? What's the meaning for me? Well, this verse, John 1.14, ends with a powerful invitation. John 1.14 ends this way, full of grace and truth. The word full means abounding or complete. Grace refers to a favor done without expectation of return. And truth has the idea of factual, pure, sincere, and without error. So, grace and truth? Well, those two concepts don't appear together very often. Here's why. Because as humans, we tend to err on one side or the other. If we stress grace, 
Well, we can be too quick to cut someone slack. We're like, hey, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you believe. Well, if we pull the truth trigger too quickly, we can wipe someone out. So grace without truth can lead to sloppy sentimentality, and truth without grace, well, that can lead to religious rigidity. Ah, but with Jesus, you can always count on both truth and grace. He tells the truth about your situation and your sins, and then his grace causes him to stick with you all the way. So at Christmas, we're reminded that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The manger is filled with the awesomeness of God's glory and grace. But we're also faced with a terrible truth. Because of our sin, Jesus Christ came to die for us as our substitute. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So because he's full of grace, you can come to him just as you are without having to clean up your act first. You don't need to do penance or focus on performing for him. Because he's full of truth, you can come in complete confidence knowing that he will keep his promise to forgive you and grant you eternal life. That's grace, and that's truth. And without both working together, we would have neither. So at Christmas, we see Jesus as 100% God and 100% man. Jesus became what he had never been before without losing what he had always been. And because he is God, he is sovereign. Because he is man, he can be our substitute by taking our place of punishment on the cross. So God the Father is just and therefore requires payment for our sins. And because he's a God of grace, he provides the Savior who shed his blood as full payment for our sins. He is just and the justifier of those who place their faith in him. And he comes to dwell with us. I was given a bird feeder several years ago, but I hadn't put any bird seed in it for a long time. After a really frigid cold spell, I finally filled it up, well, because I felt sorry for the birds. I told Megan, who was 17 at the time, that I was now officially old because I was bothered about the birds. She agreed with me. I'm probably getting close to watching Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy as well. <laughs> anyway, I filled it to the top, but no birds came for breakfast, for lunch, or for dinner. They completely ignored it. This went on for two days. I was more worried than I should have been and actually wondered how I could get a message to the birds that there was free food for them. I thought about putting a sign up, but wasn't sure that would work. The only way I could communicate with them was if I became a bird so I could tell them. I guess I'm not only getting old, but also losing my mind. Hey, listen, Jesus became one of us in order to get a message to us that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. God's glory is back. God's glory resides in Jesus, and Jesus will dwell among us, and we can dwell with him forever. One author said it like this, Christmas is the end of thinking you are better than someone else, because Christmas is telling you that you could never get to heaven on your own. God had to come to you. Let me come back to the pastor who said, keep it short and sweet and simple. <laughs> he also said these profound words. If you really want to keep it simple, you could probably reduce the Christmas message even further. 
picking up the two words of the angel's message that capture the heart of the Christian message. Here they are, for you. Notice it's not just that Jesus is born, but the angels say Jesus is born for you. And it's not just good news in general, it's good news of great joy for you and all people. For while the gospel is never a private word, is nevertheless a very personal word. The incarnation is an especially joyful and important doctrine for Christians. Why? Because not only did God align with man, but through this alignment, Jesus gained a human body that could in turn be sacrificed to endure God's wrath. This was the only way that man could be saved. So Christmas tells us there's no need to perform or do penance for God because everything we need has already been provided by Christ. Well, thank you so much for listening in uh, to this rough draft of a message that I have burning in my heart and hopefully by the time I'm able to communicate it we'll be able to do it with more clarity less confusion and that you and I will be moved to worship uh, this Christmas season thank you for tuning in again there's the word tuning in (laughs) thank you for downloading Uh, this On Mission episode. If you find these beneficial, hey, could you give us a review or click one of the stars there? That helps this just rise up a little higher in search results and uh, in the hopes that others can find this and benefit from it as well. Uh, We'll talk to you soon. 